This morning we are going to take for our main text Ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 through 28. So if you have not turned there, I encourage you to do so. And also we will read responsively from the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 111. You'll find this on page 249 in the Thin Forms and Prayers book. 249 in the Thin Forms and Prayers book. You can also navigate to it in the hymnal as well. The three forms of unity, which includes the Heidelberg Catechism, are in both of those books. Now, where are we? I know that there are some visitors here, and sometimes it's just beneficial to have a reminder. We have been working our way through key Christian doctrines summarized in the Catechism that we derive from the Bible, which is our sole authority or our final authority on all matters of faith and doctrine and life. And we have been working in particular through the Ten Commandments. And last week we looked at the first side, if you will, of the Eighth Command. You shall not steal. You can find that in Exodus chapter 20. You shall not steal. And we saw basically that in it God forbids not only outright theft, but any kind of scheming or deceitful trickery that you would use to deprive somebody else of what is rightfully theirs. And then we saw the command gets at the root as well, gets at the root of all of this temptation to seal. And those roots are things like a dissatisfaction or disapproval, a doubt of God's goodness and his providence. God has ordained that we have certain things and that we receive them in certain ways. And so there's a sinful root that says, I am not content with what God will give to me in his way. Or to simply disregard the moral order of the world and say, I, I'm sure his providence may be good, but I will do what I want. And so that's the first side of this, the, the negative side, if you will. But this morning, we are going to turn to look at the positive side of the commandment. How do we actively express love in light of the Eighth Commandment? And our main text here will be, as I said, verses 17 through 28, with a focus on verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father in heaven, we thank you 
this morning that you speak to us, that you have preserved your inspired scriptures down through the ages, that they are reliable, and that they teach us through the work of your Holy Spirit, your true will. We ask this morning, Lord, that you would please not only give us accurate understanding of what you desire, but incline our hearts, Lord, tip us in the direction of pleasing you. For we confess that there is often resistance, in particular to the Eighth Commandment. We desire what is not ours and to have it more easily than you have appointed. Change us, Lord, for we ask that Christ be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen. You'll notice verse 24 addresses something that we've been touching on in many sermons for a number of weeks. In terms of what it means to be human is to be an image bearer of God. And what it means to be a Christian is to be putting on again the image that was corrupted in the fall. You see in verse 24 it says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Ever think about the fact that when God creates the world and he makes the rocks and the trees and the birds and they're all very good and he says they're good, but they're not image bearers. When you think about the goodness of just a gorgeous flower, it does not consciously, willfully act out righteousness and love. It is a high calling to be a human being. We actively express the love of God. And that means that when we consider the Eighth Commandment, we are called to more than just not stealing. Rocks don't steal. Trees don't steal. Birds might steal, but they don't, it's not stealing. They're not violating moral law with knowledge as we do. When we are called to love in the Eighth Commandment, we are called to actively express God's attributes And that means working. He is a worker. He works six days of the week, as we read in Scripture. And really on the seventh, he'll do good that is necessary and merciful as well. We're called to be workers, and we are called not only to provide for ourselves, but to provide for others. And we're going to see that the Lord calls us not only to be earnest laborers, but those who generously provide for the needs of others. Now, this passage that we've just read states it very plainly, and we're going to look at it even more closely. But it's also summarized for us in Heidelberg Catechism, question answer 111. I'll read the question. Let's respond together with the answer. This is what our churches have confessed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. What does God require of you in this commandment? That I do whatever I can and may for my neighbor's good, that I treat others as I would like to treat me, and that I work faithfully so that I may help the needy in their hardship. That's a summary of what the Bible teaches, and it is our calling in Jesus Christ. Not only as those who were created to bear his image, but those who have been redeemed to bear his image. And so as we consider this calling, we're going to do so under three main divisions. First, we're going to look at specifically how the Lord calls you to provide for yourself as able. And then secondly, how the Lord calls you to provide for others as able. And then finally, I want to conclude by laying before you just some pastoral counsel, perhaps an exhortation to you. But these are the ideas that we're looking at. 
Now, I do want to acknowledge from the outset, though, something that is obvious to all but the absolute youngest here who simply don't understand yet. But it's important to state, God is aware, and the Bible acknowledges, that not everyone can provide for themselves in terms of their daily needs, the food that they eat, the clothes on their back. Not everybody can either partially or even totally provide for themselves. Think about small children. You think about people who are perhaps terribly injured or diseased for a long time. You think about those who, in forms of service that don't represent outside income, nevertheless are fully occupied. I think of mothers who are raising children, and they are unable to carry a full-time job or even any work at times. The Lord understands that situation, and some people simply need to be told that in that circumstance, God's calling upon you, if that is you, is to receive his providence through others with humility and gratitude. Not to continue to make yourself feel terrible that I, I can't provide. If this is the circumstance that you're in, it's time to receive it humbly. But on the other hand, for those who are able, to the extent that you are able to increase what used to be called the, the common wheel, not W-H-E-E-L, like a rolling wheel, but W-E-A-L, the welfare of society, the common good. But wheel was, was more particular than just saying good because it's the health of all. It's the opportunity of all. To the extent that you are able to contribute to that, the Bible is very clear, as we see in verse 28 here, God calls you to labor for your own living. Look at me at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. As we consider this in the first place, what we need to see is that the Lord calls you to provide for your own living, honestly and earnestly. When you think about that word labor, it means what it says. Exert yourself vigorously. Exert yourself vigorously and skillfully in the things that you do. Now, of course, he adds to this with your own hands, not because of some obligation that Christians must be handy workers. This is not an Amish-esque calling where it's somehow not appropriate for Christians to take their physical hands from the work. Many of you, I know, work in professional environments or service-oriented, and a lot of your work is about talking, and I am in the same situation. What he's getting at here is that you are not depending upon other people. You're not shifting the work to other people. All he means is that you have a responsibility not to sit on your hands and be idle and to resist any sense of entitlement to other people's wages while you don't add to the common wheel. Turn with me and look at 1 Thessalonians. Not far from where we are, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Because there you'll see on more than one occasion, but in that occasion in particular, the apostles have strong words to speak about this because they know not only is the common good being affected, but the reputation of Christ's body is at stake. The church corporately is the body of Christ, but you individually are an ambassador of Christ. 
And Paul was hearing rumors that some of those who had come to faith were now being slack hands for one reason or another. And here we encounter in verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brothers. This is not an invitation. It's not a recommendation. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by no higher authority, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Notice, it's not just, in this passage, don't be idle. It's beware the contagion and literally put an amount of shame upon that person. In our present society, of course, there's a feeling, oh, don't put shame on anyone. Some things are shameful. And many people do not respond until there is an honest, upright disapproval expressed towards certain behavior. This doesn't mean hate them. That's not what it's saying. We love people. But the way that we show love is by holding people accountable, particularly in the faith. This is talking about other Christians. Keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. As a minister of the word, the Apostle Paul had a calling from God to feed the flock of the Lord. And he states elsewhere it would have been within his rights to receive compensation for that from them. But especially for these young believers who don't know all of his motives, don't know his established character, all of that, he makes sure to set an example that they can follow. We're not here to use anyone. All of us are serving everyone. And he says, we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Verse 9 It was not because we do not have that right. And then he goes on, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, and to earn their own living. The Lord calls human beings to image him. And so it's not an option not to labor. And in particular, not to become a burden to other people if we can anyway make a contribution. Everyone cannot make the same contribution. But we should all want to make the best that we can. And so we're called to labor, to be earnest and vigorous, And not only vigorous, but honest, as it says in verse 28. To do honest labor. Because, of course, we know there are ways to provide for others dishonestly. You can provide for your family while not necessarily being involved in some illicit job. How are most people likely to steal, realistically, in the congregational setting? Probably by shirking duties in their actual callings and responsibility. By being lazy in their work, by not following up. 
No one of us wants to throw the first stone, of course. We all are guilty. And we saw last week, the point of hearing these things is not, first of all, to establish our own righteousness. We are not righteous. Christ has come and has fulfilled righteousness for us. But now he's filling it through us. And hear what it says in Ephesians 6, 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as mere people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. You aren't working for yourself at the end of the day. You are working unto the Lord. I remember uh, when I was in my early 20s, I worked at a place. I hesitate to state the name of the place lest it seem like advertising. I worked at a food place. And I worked the overnight shift. We would reset the whole facility, clean everything, unload the trucks with the food. And I remember that there was uh, another man working there who it never seemed like he was getting things done on time. And he would wait until the last moment to get things done. I'd see him sitting around listening to music, doing things. And it was often just the two of us working there. And I was keenly aware that if he didn't do work, I would feel like I had to do it or it would be my word against him. And thankfully, the Lord delivered me shortly thereafter from that circumstance when he was on a different shift with somebody else on a different night, apparently he took a nap on the potatoes. It doesn't sound comfortable. But I'm sure he thought, nobody's going to show up and they're not going to know. And perhaps your boss will show up, but Christ is present. He's there. He sees. And we're called in this way to labor unto him. There could be the objection at times, and I've felt this too, all of us have probably. At different times you feel... But my employer doesn't deserve that level of service. Wait a second. Did they agree to these terms with you that you would work 32 hours and not 40? Was that the actual agreement? What were the terms that you agreed to when you said, because you could theoretically find somewhere else. But especially if they are aware that you're a Christian, your example means something. And when you say they don't deserve it, that's true, but it's not about deservedness. Did the disciples deserve that Jesus would take, out, take off his outer garment, dress himself like a slave, and wash their feet? Do you deserve it when God has been your whole life working for you, providing for you, loving you when you don't deserve it? It's not about deservedness. And when that thought rises in our hearts, we have to take the rod of Scripture and whack it back and say, no, I have integrity and what I do matters, and he who is faithful in a few things will be given more to be responsible over. And so we're called then to labor honestly. This requirement of integrity is illustrated another way in the Old Testament. I won't ask you to turn there because it's a brief passage, but I want to state this is one of those wonderful occasions. I'm not saying that we can interpret providence. We cannot. But it's one of those wonderful occasions where something you're working on to prepare, the Lord just hands you an illustration. Because I had my sermon written earlier in the week, and then yesterday I went to 
the park with my kids, and we started playing with another family or throwing frisbee and things. We didn't know these people at all. And somehow we got onto a story about how while they were in some wealthy area of Santa Barbara, they found a dog on the trail, and the dog had a collar. It was not a wild dog. It looked like a well-groomed dog. And they called the number on the collar, but nobody picked up, but there was an address on the collar, so they thought, we'll just bring the dog back to this person. So they drove, and they just followed the GPS wherever it took them, and they said it took them to, the, to a home of somebody that, for all they knew, it was Oprah's house. It was, you know, curated gardens, this incredible, incredible place. And they felt almost like, are they going to think that we had their animal hostage? Is it like, what's, are we allowed to be here in this wealthy, wealthy place? And then finally they turned the dog over to the owner and they said the owner didn't offer thanks. Didn't even offer, you know, would you like a bottle of water? Just took it and sent them on their way. If they had known that that's how they would have been treated, should they have still returned the dog? Yeah. For whose sake? The dog's sake? Yeah. But also for the people and for the Lord's sake. Hear what it says in Exodus 23, verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. And if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Deuteronomy 22, verse 2 expands, If he does not live with you, if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house, and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or his garment or with anything lost of your brothers, which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. In a manner of speaking, nothing is lost when we serve a God who is omniscient. And so simply saying finders keepers is not true. We are stewards of the rights of others. And this is the integrity the Lord calls us to when we are in our workplace, in whatever situation we're in. But now, is it enough simply to provide for yourself? If all you did was pay your own bills your whole life, and you depart into glory, will the Lord say, that is what I had in mind? From Scripture, we can answer definitively, no. The Lord calls us, if able, to go beyond that. And this brings us to our second main heading here as we look at the way we relate to others, noticing especially the words in verse 28, so that, so that. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Why work? At the end of the day, it's not simply so that you are filled. You are filled so that you are energized and able to serve in the world. Providing for ourselves is not the end. Even though the tone of so much of our culture suggests otherwise. And people don't want to come right out and say that, but it's represented in prioritization. And again, who would dare to throw the first stone? I do want to acknowledge a fact that I think needs to be stated for some people especially, And I do want to state it on behalf of those who are maybe in their teens or 20s at this time. You're at a stage of life, most of you, where you are 
moving into the world and discovering just how broken it is in many ways. And when you were younger, you knew that there were poor people. When you were younger, you knew that there was poverty and homelessness, but you didn't really understand how much, how whole regions of the world we would describe as slums. The need is immense. And you're also at a stage of life where you have relatively few responsibilities and liabilities. And it's easy for you to imagine that, on the one hand, that you could just let go of everything, but you aren't under responsibility yet. On the other hand, you might feel like you have to give away everything. It's important to remember that the needs of this world, especially economically, productively, vastly outstrip any individual's ability to meet them. And you'll drive yourself mad if you think that you alone have to make every impoverished person as well off as you were raised. So there is a balance in recognizing our calling versus something where you feel a false guilt that the devil would drive you down through. Jesus says with good reason, you will always have the poor among you. And that doesn't mean neglect the poor. That's not what Jesus is saying. Saying, but recognize the limitations. And that means you have to prioritize with your limited resources how you will support those in need. So how do you prioritize? Some people prioritize chronologically. Just whatever need comes up, they try to meet it. I would encourage you to think more biblically in terms of the principles the Bible grants us about how you are going to take from your surplus to provide for others who have need. What is the order in Scripture? In the first place, as we've already seen, you have a duty to not be a burden to others. Meet your basic requirements first. But what about beyond that? The Bible lays the next order of responsibility on caring for those that you, by nature, or legally, as the family is formed, are actually related to. You have a duty towards your family, starting first with your own household, but then expanding out to your relatives. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Timothy 5, 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially his own household, which shows that his own is broader than his immediate nuclear family, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are strong words. But we need to be reminded of that, and there are probably people here who feel conviction over that. And of course, wisdom needs to be applied as you think through things. First, if you have children, obviously, you provide for them. But then what about the case of you're a middle-aged person and you have older parents, and maybe those parents didn't make the right decisions, and they squandered money. And as a consequence, they're in a position where their retirement is not funded and they are dependent. Should you not provide for them because they made mistakes? Wisdom is involved. I would tell you I'm persuaded from Scripture and go to Scripture and study for yourself. Providing for their decent living is required. Not that you make them rich. But food and clothing, now Paul says he's content, I'm, there's, a, there's a line in disrespecting them as well. But hear what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15 where he rebukes the Pharisees, these religious leaders. He says, 
Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother will surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is now given to God. He need not honor his father. Then so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. In other words, here are these religious leaders who say, hey, look, yeah, the commandment does say honor your father and mother, but since God is more important than your father and mother, if you give that money to the church, you don't have to give it to them. Especially if you're doing that publicly, giving, say, a piece of land. And now there's credit and honor being given by the community, but we gave it to God. Here, Jesus places the priority with family even before anything is being given to the church. Again, we're talking about needs. The needs of your family are being met, not necessarily the wants, before even giving to the kingdom. Next comes giving to those who have need within the body of Christ. Hear what it says in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, verse 6. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, within the context of Galatians, he's clearly talking the harvest is looking to the end, not even in this life, to glory. So he's not talking about us sowing a seed of faith and getting rich sometime in this life. Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to the family of faith. Is it because Christians are more deserving? Is it because we want to have an in-club? No. It's because they are your family in Christ. And our natural family takes a precedent here for multiple reasons. This is not to put them against each other. But your Christian family is real. That's not corporate talk when we say we're family. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And so we take care of one another. What shame would it be upon a congregation if we were aware that there is somebody who could not acquire food, clothing, shelter, and yet they're a brother or sister? This is one of the reasons why we have a diaconal fund. Every time we have the Lord's Supper, we take up a special offering for benevolence. Children, that benevolence, the word which means to do good, when we do a benevolence offering, we're providing a pool of money that our deacons then use with wisdom and the gifts God gave them to provide for people who have real-life needs, starting with in the church and then outside of the church. And when you give in that way, you are giving to the poor, though there are certainly other ways that you give as well. And then finally, we care for others. You can find plenty of stories in the Bible. For instance, Job. Job describes how when he would approach the widows, their eyes would light up. He's not talking about him being so handsome. He's talking that he cared for them. He says, I held the hand and raised up the orphan. Here was Job, a man of substance, but he had riches not for riches' sake, but as a responsibility to the community. And this is what the Lord then calls us to. By way of conclusion, I want to lay before you a few pieces of counsel or or application in relation to these principles that we've been seeing over both sermons the first place I want to address those who are younger here, uh, especially those who are in their teens or maybe their early 20s, I want to exhort you. Strive 
to excel in your schoolwork. Strive to excel in your vocational work. Your best may not be someone else's best. I discovered that especially when I was in seminary. I was bright enough, I guess, to get into seminary, but suddenly I was around people who in 45 minutes could memorize paradigms of Greek and Hebrew that took me four hours. And I remember one of my teachers, a wonderful godly man, seeing me become frustrated and sitting down with me and saying, Michael, God wants your best. But he still wants your best. And he's worthy of it. And we live in this tension, and that tension is fine. This tension between, I know I don't live up to it, I need grace, but God, give me grace to do better. Strive to excel. Why should you excel? You don't know what doors you will close if you don't. And you don't know what doors the Lord may open if you do. The Lord has not promised that just because you work hard, you're now entitled to things. Jesus worked hard. He died on a cross poor. You're not entitled. But ordinarily, these things go hand in hand. Proverbs 22, verse 29, giving us general wisdom. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Strive to excel. Who knows what good you may be able to accomplish in the world and what doors will open. To all of those who are adults here, who are able to provide partially or totally, I want to address you, and especially those, though it applies to everybody, especially those who are in their 20s and 30s, as you are setting habits for life. I want to exhort you, do not give in to the temptation to prioritize an ever-increasing, quote, standard of life. The standard of life is knowing Christ. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly, says Jesus. He is the life. And we cannot know him as well and truly if we are fixated on objects, things, and experiences out in the world as what will give us satisfaction. So I haven't said, don't have nice things. Whatsoever you have, have it unto the Lord. But beware the imbalance that often comes. Rather, I encourage you in the first place, prepare now for seasons of want. Prepare now for seasons of scarcity that you may face so that you won't be a burden to others later. We have all known, and many of us have been, people who say, I can't afford to put money into an emergency fund. I can't afford to prepare for my retirement. While at the same time, buying an ATV or whatever thing you do that you say, but I need that because, you know, life would be miserable without this. You will always find a way to justify things when your character is poor. Christ calls us to something different. The book of Proverbs says, go to the ant, you sluggard. See how it stores up in the summer for the winter? It's not inappropriate to lay up an an amount that is meant to provide so that we're not a burden to others. That's not the same thing as just living on the hog. And then I encourage you, likewise, make a weekly habit of intentional giving for the needs of others. Note, I didn't just say something like, ties and authors to the church. This is not about my income. The Lord will provide for his servants. And some of you probably, it needs to be more emphasis upon family who have need. 
1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, the apostle says, On the first day of the week, which would be the Lord's day, On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. And while that was dealing with a specific time of need in the body of Christ, dealing with a famine, there is always a need. And having to have it weekly, there should never be a week that goes by that if the Lord provided for us this week, that we don't say, then I want to bear his image and provide for others. Highly intentional generosity built into how we function. All of us can say that we've missed times of that. That's, that's not the point. Today is a day to change. But this is a calling to us. And then finally, I want to address men and women as men and women here. On the one hand, the Bible certainly condones and acknowledges the ability of women, the appropriateness of, of women to earn income outside of the home. Proverbs chapter 31, you see this marvelous figure of a woman named Wisdom who goes out and says she's in the marketplace, she's buying and she's selling, she's up early, she's at it. It does not tell us the age of her children. And that is to be factored in. You have Lydia, the seller of purple in the book of Acts. And Paul doesn't take her aside and rebuke her for what she does. She's probably a manager on some level. On the other hand, as a pastor, I would advise you, the creational pattern that we've seen previously, the creational pattern, even the words involved in the curse, and then just plain common sense, all instruct us concerning the wisdom that in the years when a mother is especially nurturing small children, it is difficult, if not impossible, to render what those children need while being outside of the home. I realize some people bristle at that statement. I will not apologize for scripture. And the Eighth Commandment is about stealing. And there's the question, in a society that has adjusted itself to the expectation that you cannot make ends meet without two people working, have we not robbed nurture from multitudes of children? Again, I've not said that there's not a way to fit it in or a, a right way. And there's questions about ages of children and all of that. But this is what I would exhort the men here strive to work and to earn if you possibly can in the Lord's providence strive to earn in such a way that it's a legitimate option for your wife to stay home with your kids so that she doesn't feel well I have to go do it sometimes that's the case God works extraordinarily and will give greater grace but let it not be because some man was idle in his 20s and didn't lay a foundation for his future. Not in this church. In this church, don't be surprised if elders exhort you in your 20s. What are you doing? Get off your hands. Stop playing games figuratively or literally. Go get an education. Go get voc vocational skills. Do something so that your family will flourish. The scriptures say that a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And there's no better inheritance that you can leave than a legacy of grace and of upright character in Christ. We can't do this in ourselves. We are putting on the new man. Christ died to give us the Holy Spirit. 
He died not just to forgive our sins, but to give us the Spirit so we can do these things in him. Let's ask him to help us in that even now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the high privilege of representing you in the world. And we fall so far short, Lord. But we thank you that we do have a beginning of this righteousness, and there have been times where we work as unto you, and we ask that you would renew us for that. And we pray that the overflow of our work would be an increased desire to magnify your generosity in the way that we provide for others, whether that be in our family or our churches, the broader kingdom, or simply for our neighbors in the world. May we do all of this in the name of Jesus, that he would be glorified. For we ask it in his name. Amen.